World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Venezuela has been crippled by years of economic instability. It's got the world's worst performing currency. So it was perhaps with a bit of Dutch courage that one plucky rum company made a share offering on the country's near-dormant stock market. And in the Democratic Republic of Congo, political instability comes at a cost. Rebel groups control pockets of land and quite a few of the country's post offices. We look at how letters get delivered, even when postal workers haven't been paid for a year. First up, though. For months, the Syrian regime, led by Bashar al-Assad and backed by Russian forces, has been waging an increasingly bloody offensive in Idlib. The province in Syria's northwest is held by rebel forces and is home to some three million people. The bombardment has killed at least 300 since December and propelled another million towards Turkey's sealed border. Hospitals, schools, and civilian areas have all been hit. Aid groups working in the area say they're overwhelmed. Thousands of migrants are pressing their way into the European Union via Greece after Turkey opened its European border, an act it had previously pledged to avoid. In a speech yesterday, Turkey's president Recep Tayyip Erdogan claimed that more than 100,000 migrants have left for Europe and said the number would soon reach a million. To stem the wave of migration, Turkey has sent thousands of troops to the province to stop the Syrian offensive. Last week, at least 34 of its soldiers were killed in an airstrike. Russia denied involvement in that attack. But yesterday, United Nations investigators said Russia had committed war crimes for airstrikes on civilian targets last July, tactics they claimed were still being used in Idlib. Fears are now growing of a direct conflict between Russia and Turkey, whose leaders will meet on Thursday. Idlib province is the last stronghold of the rebels in Syria. Roger McShane is our Middle East editor. And it's protected by Turkey, not so much because Turkey thinks the rebels will ultimately defeat Bashar al-Assad, that the the larger war is is all but lost. But Turkey views Idlib sort of like a a reservoir that has been filling up with potential refugees. As other cities in Syria fell to Assad, the displaced headed to Idlib. And, And Turkey fears that Assad's efforts to retake the province will essentially break the dam and send another wave of migrants across the Turkish border. And how has that situation escalated recently? Well, Turkey has hit back very hard after the attack on its forces last week. Its drones and heavy artillery have been pounding Syrian army positions and convoys. 
The Turkish government claims to have destroyed over 100 tanks and put more than 2,500 Syrian soldiers out of action. Now, whether or not those numbers are accurate, you can tell just by observation that the counteroffensive has changed the dynamic on the ground. After months of losing territory, the rebels are now retaking it from the regime. And I think just as important, it's really demonstrated Turkey's resolve in protecting Idlib. I mean, it's clear that uh, President Erdogan views the fall of the province as almost an existential threat to himself, to his regime. It would signal the failure of his Syria policy and and produce a, a flood of migrants that would be politically disastrous for him at home. And I, I think knowing this, I think knowing how high the stakes are for Turkey, that might make Assad and his Russian backers think differently about how to solve the problem in Idlib, at least in the short term. But in the, in the meantime, it looks more and more like a, a sort of Russia versus Turkey scenario. How, how much risk is there that that develops into an explicit conflict between the two? So over the past week, Russia has largely ceded the skies around Idlib to Turkey and allowed this counterattack to happen. So you you haven't seen anything like a a Russian jet shooting down a Turkish drone. But the question is really how far will Turkey try to go with this counteroffensive and how far will Russia allow it to go? And there's always a risk of miscalculation here. I mean, you could argue that this whole episode began with a miscalculation on the part of Russia which was clearly involved in the initial attack on on Turkish forces. But it's also telling that Turkey has largely avoided blaming Russia for that attack. It's it's only blamed the Assad regime. On the other hand, if you look at Russian state TV, it's been playing down the Turkish counteroffensive. Now, had it been any other foreign power shooting up a Russian proxy, Vladimir Putin would be going nuts about this. He'd be pushing back hard. But you're not seeing that. And and that's because I think the relationship between... Turkey and Russia has been cultivated over the course of years. You know, this is Russia trying to peel Turkey away from NATO and the West. And it's President Erdogan of Turkey seeing Putin as something of a, a kindred spirit, another strong man who will sell him weapons and won't hector him about human rights. And it's clear that both sides want to keep this relationship going. And so in that regard, what might come out of the meeting then on Thursday between Mr. Erdogan and Mr. Putin? I think you'll probably see an effort to move back to the Sochi agreement, which was hashed out between Turkey and Russia in 2018. Now, that deal was meant to create a buffer zone between the rebels and the Assad regime around Idlib. And under that deal, they were meant to keep their local allies in check. Now, the problem was that last bit. Uh, Turkey overestimated its influence over the jihadist rebels that now run Idlib. And Russia doesn't have complete control over the Assad regime. Now, by allowing Turkey to rough up Assad's troops, Russia may be reasserting some of that control over the regime. But I I really I don't think the dynamic has changed all that much between the foreign powers and their proxies in Syria. And and so while a a move back to the Sochi agreement and and a halt to the fighting would be welcome to at least alleviate the the human suffering in Idlib, it's it's not a permanent solution. It's, It's really just storing up trouble for later. But about the, the human cost of this in, in Idlib, what, what is the humanitarian situation like now? I mean, it's serious and, and it's getting more serious. I mean, Idlib is already one of the poorest parts of, of Syria. And over the course of the war, its population ha- has more than doubled to about 3 million people, about half of whom have fled fighting elsewhere. And in recent months, about 1 million of those people have been displaced again 
They've been pushed into areas near the Turkish border with little food and shelter. You have reports of people freezing to death. And they're largely stuck there. I mean, on one side, you have the fighting in Idlib. On the other, you have Turkey, which already hosts 4 million refugees, says it cannot take anymore, and has sealed its borders. So these Syrians from Idlib, they're essentially trapped in this area. And it's worth noting that this humanitarian disaster has been taking shape for months, and the world largely ignored it because it was a problem sealed away in inside Syria. And it really took Turkey opening its borders with Europe and sending refugees that way, essentially threatening a new migrant crisis to finally get the attention uh, of European countries. And and with that, a continuation of the, the suffering of those refugees. I mean, none of that gets solved before the political situation gets solved. How do you think that would, could, may play out? Yeah, I mean, this is, this is of course, the million-dollar question, and it's, <laughs> it's difficult. You have Assad on one side who says he won't rest until he's taken back the entire country. Russia has his back, and it also wants the war to end. And, and it's only going to end with sort of a, a Idlib coming back under the control of Assad. You have Turkey on the other side, and it cannot let Idlib fall, lest it lead to a disaster at home for President Erdogan. So it does seem less likely now that the situation will be resolved through warfare, at least in, in the short term. I mean, it's less likely that Assad will take back the province by force. But it's also difficult to foresee a permanent political solution. I mean, I think the way it's playing out now, it's, it's sort of left to President Erdogan and President Putin to sort of figure out how to fix the, the problem of, of Idlib, how to, how to solve it. And, and I don't think that can make anyone very optimistic. Roger, thanks very much for joining us. My pleasure. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Venezuela is in one of the deepest recessions in modern economic history. But Venezuelan rum company Ron Santa Teresa is taking a chance on the country's near-dormant stock market. In January, the company made a share offering, the first on the exchange in more than a decade. This, as Venezuela's president Nicolas Maduro loosens currency controls to allow foreign trading and to lure capital into the country. Some hope that all of that signals a greater economic transition, But any optimism is in stark contrast to the reality of daily life in Venezuela, which has been hit by political instability, hyperinflation, and food shortages. Well, the joke was, really, whether perhaps some of the executives in uh, Santa Teresa run had been sampling a little bit too much of their own product. Stephen Gibbs reports for The Economist from Caracas. Given this, on face value, slightly unusual development that in the middle of the deepest recession the world has ever seen by some accounts. It was attempting to sell some shares on the almost dormant Venezuelan stock market. But the company says this does make sense. 
and assures uh, anyone that asks that they haven't been uh, overdoing it in the sampling rooms. As you say, on the face of it, it, it does look a little bit crazy because who, who in the country at this point has money to buy shares? It's a good question. Yes, this is an, an economy that's contracted by 65% since 2013. We are still in the situation of very high inflation, over 9,000%. Who has money? Well, there are quite a few people who have bolivars, the local currency, particularly companies, and they need to find somewhere to put that money and one way is the stock market. So that, in brief, is one of the explanations why this went ahead. And so how did it go when it went ahead? It raised $300,000. Obviously, that seems a very small figure compared to most of the world's stock markets. But that's a big day for the Venezuelan stock market that, as I say, has been almost dormant. Only 31 companies listed on it. Very, very little trading every day. And also, $300,000... Believe it or not, uh, it's almost impossible to raise that currently in Venezuela. The chief executive, the president of, of the Santa Teresa company, told me that you know he rang, rang around four of the biggest banks in Venezuela. He runs a pretty substantial company, and it's impossible to get a loan of $300,000. So that was another incentive to go to the stock market and and find institutional and individual investors who were willing to come up with the money. That money is going to be used for, it's going to be all reinvested, the company says. Uh, Why does it need to do that? Well, actually, it's recently done a distribution deal with Bacardi. It needs to produce more rum to to provide for that distribution deal. And this was a way of, of financing that, really. So, so if that's a good way to, to be able to raise that, that sum of money in Venezuela these days, I, I wonder why this kind of thing didn't come before. I mean, why now? It does happen at a time when something else is going on in Venezuela. It seems that the avowedly socialist government that has run this country for the last 21 years, led currently by President Nicolas Maduro, he himself seems to be having a bit of a conversion towards capitalism, really, to put it frankly. A lot of changes have happened in the last few months that really would have seemed completely improbable about a couple of years ago. One is you see the dollar widely used all over Caracas and and outside across the country. Until 2018, it was prohibited, really, to trade in the dollar. Now the government is allowing that to happen. Various other things. President Maduro said he's planning to open a casino uh, here in Caracas or reopen one that was part of several that were closed by uh, his predecessor, Hugo Chavez, you know, because of course, casinos, the ultimate symbol, supposedly, of evil capitalism. So that's the background for this share issuance. But the company says, look, we're not being directed by the government here. We're not necessarily following the government's lead, the chief executive, Alberto Volma, said it's really nothing more than a happy coincidence, to use his words, uh, that the share launch happens at the same time as all these other things are going on in Venezuela. And why do you suppose that President Maduro is is having this revelation now after being so avowedly against these kinds of, of market reforms? It's in a way, it's desperation. This is an economy, as I said, that has completely shrunk oil production at its lowest level since 1945, the economy largely sanctioned by the United States. Very, very tough situation. And someone has said to Nicolas Maduro, look, 
the one answer probably is to let a bit more private enterprise happen here. Stop these sort of price controls, these fierce restrictions they had uh, on a normal free market economy. That's what he seems to be going ahead with. And even another development was that in his address to the nation, President Maduro said, you know what, maybe we're going to allow private companies to issue securities, bonds, shares, etc., in foreign currencies. La emisión de títulos de valor en moneda extranjera para todas las empresas del país. So the stock market may well be about to have a, a bit of a renaissance here. Um, and that again, you know, what more obvious symbol of capitalism. And so would you read from that that Mr. Maduro is feeling a little more comfortable in his rule? It's a difficult one to answer that. I think we can be pretty confident that if President Maduro felt that he was on the way out, if this country was in a situation where a big sort of social explosion was was round the corner, then Santa Teresa, the rum company, would probably uh, pause its attempts to issue shares. So I think it probably shows that there is a bit of stability Yeah, President Maduro is more confident now than he was a year ago when he was facing a very, very serious challenge to his rule. But uh, he's still in a bit of a corner. And that's also another reason, really, why he needs this economy to reawaken. And lifting the brakes is one way to do that. You think then that Santa Teresa is a a sort of canary in the coal mine here, that we're going to see a lot more of this? I think it's quite possible. Um, And the company itself told me that... Since they did this share launch, a whole lot of other companies in Venezuela rang them up and said, wow, how did you pull that off? You know, we too need to finance our operations and this may be a solution of how to do it. So yeah, it could be the beginning of a change, but you have to be cautious. This is still a country where sort of politics trumps economics there's a, always the possibility that we see this thing that you see have seen elsewhere in controlled economies where there's a sort of step forward, where things seem to be about to open up, and then a couple of steps backwards. So uh, let's see, but there is a bit of optimism in the air. Stephen, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Postal workers pride themselves on dedication, delayed by neither snow, nor rain, nor heat, nor gloom of night. But in the Democratic Republic of Congo, the Postal Service has also come up against bad roads, dysfunctional government, and dozens of rebel groups. Yet, postal workers keep trying to deliver the goods. Goma is the capital of North Kivu province in eastern Congo. Olivia Ackland reports from Congo for The Economist. It has about two million inhabitants. And on the edge of a roundabout, there's this very vast and impressive post office building that was built by the Belgian colonizers in the 1950s. It's complete with a turret at one end and a colonnade and sort of peeling yellow paint. And how are the postal workers there getting on? I went to speak to the post office director, who reckons that only about 40% of the letters actually reach their recipients. This is for a number of reasons. One is that a lot of people don't have addresses. So, for example, I don't have a a number on my house in Goma. People move a lot, partly because of insecurity. And then outside of Goma, it's even harder. Goma is the capital of the North Kivu province, which is larger than Switzerland. 
and is densely forested and has very few roads and a lot of rebel groups lurking in the bush. Are there even any post offices left in the rural areas of the province? There are 19 post offices in North Kivu, and only nine of them are still going. The rest have been looted or abandoned. I recently visited the town of Beni, and the post office there had been burnt down by protesters. And because the buildings are these sort of large, colonial, sturdy structures built by the Belgians, they're often the first places that rebel groups occupy when they turn up in a new town. So I spoke to the director of the post office and he sort of reeled off a list of all the different rebel groups who'd occupied all of these different post offices throughout the region. Back in 1996, the Goma post office itself was occupied by Laurent Kabila, who was a rebel soldier turned president, and he used it as a recruitment centre where he recruited child soldiers. And then when the rebels eventually leave the post offices, they often leave little intact. They pull the doors off their hinges and the wooden shutters and use them as firewood. They loot whatever they can. And so a lot of these post offices are sort of shells that are not used for much anymore. What, what about the people who were actually employed to deliver the post in the first place? Well, the people who are keeping the post office going haven't actually been paid for a year. Back in the heyday, it used to be one of the most desirable jobs in the country. And everyone was queuing up to work in the post office, as the director told me. They were still very proud of what they were doing. So the financial director at the post office sort of launched into this speech about how post was so important and it was so important to keep these traditions alive. They were all sort of immaculately dressed. They were keeping they were keeping the show going. They were managing to make ends meet by leasing some land next to the post office that belonged to the post office. So with, with all these challenges ahead of them, how, how do postmen get any of the post delivered? So the letters that do get delivered are often taken by Catholic missionaries who will turn up at the Goma post office a couple of times a week and they'll be handed a bundle of letters which they will then take to Congo's sort of roadless hinterland and then they'll get to their parish buildings and they'll pin the envelopes up to the windows and villagers will come and see if they have any letters. Then the missionaries, they also sell stamps. So if you would like to write a letter back to the person you received it from, then you can buy a stamp and the missionaries will take a bundle of post back to the post office in Goma. And actually, when I was there, the post office director, he had various envelopes for uh, foreign aid workers living in Goma, and he wanted to know if I was friends with any of them. So he made me sort of leaf through this dusty pile of envelopes, dating back sort of over a year. And I did happen to know a couple of people, so I was sent away with a pile of posts to deliver myself. Olivia, thanks very much for your time and your professional delivery. Thanks very much, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you'd like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S., 
If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist.